If you try to do exactly what I did, it won't work out for you. If I try to do exactly what you do, it won't work out, right? You can't walk the same path. Trying to be somebody else will never work. I've done it in social media. All these people I used to try to be, and it didn't work. As soon as you're who you are, then you're going to be successful in anything. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you build financial independence through real estate investing and help you build passive wealth on Main Street. I'm your host, Taylor Boat, and today our guest is Sam Prim. Today, we're going through Sam's story of achieving financial independence through real estate investing by applying goal setting, hustle, drive, determination, hard work, and so much more. He has a very compelling story of starting real estate investing as a high-earning, busy professional making about $250,000 a year at his day job, starting the side hustle of real estate investing, and ultimately deciding to jump ship, go full-time real estate investing in 2018, then ultimately achieve true financial freedom, financial independence through real estate, and just keep pushing forward, keep resetting his goals, reaching farther, and doing more. Very compelling story. There's so much knowledge, actionable knowledge in this one. So you're going to learn a lot, especially if you're driven and compelled to achieve financial independence through real estate investing. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. And to date, I have acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of apartment and self-storage acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com. Fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're helping you build wealth on Main Street through real estate. Once again, our guest today is Sam Prim. Let's get into it. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to go through your progression, your story of achieving financial independence through real estate investing. So let's rewind the clock and talk about how you got started as a real estate investor. We'll walk through your growth and progression. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. So I kind of did, I feel like what a lot of people have done. I started investing in real estate on the side. So this was 2014, 2015 timeframe. I had went to school. I had a good job. I was, you know, a few years removed from college and just working a W-2 job and wasn't like hating my job, but I was wanting to do more, wanting to be my own boss, as they say, and just, you know, not work for somebody else for the next freaking 45 years of my life. So I started to invest in real estate on the side with a buddy. We bought a few rental properties, did a few wholesales, even though we didn't really know what wholesaling was. and really started to get some momentum and then started to buy even more and just typical, you know, nothing crazy snowball effect, a little more, a little more. And then 2018, quit our full-time jobs and and won all in and have really seemed to scale it since then. We can get into the specifics as we go through this. But yes, 2018 on, things have just been, been gangbusters and just utilizing real estate to, it's the best vehicle to create wealth. It always has been and probably always will be. So I just hopped on that train, didn't really know what I was getting into, but just kind of went from there. That's great. So I think a lot of folks who want to achieve what you have achieved Maybe they get in, they do that first deal, that second deal, but they really fail to scale. Maybe they're making money at it, but they're not multiplying their time. They're really turning it into another job rather than a way to you know, build wealth and income while you sleep, build systems, all that kind of a thing. So let's dig into how you manage to scale and really turn it into a business rather than just a, a hobby and a way to kind of make a side income. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like you said, just treat it as as a side hustle and that's it. And I think the biggest thing is 
treating it like a business, not like, Hey, I'm doing this on the side or, Hey, I, you know, buying these in my personal name or whatever a lot of people do, which, you know, they have their reasons, but having an LLC, treating it like a business and then having the end goal be wanting to have more independence or get rid, get rid of your job, whatever that may be. You need to set things up and have the foundational tools and hire the right people and do the right things. Like everybody that tries to do it on their own usually ends up quitting or failing or not scaling to the level they want. So I think a big reason I was able to scale was having a business partner that I trusted. It's not like it's one of those things where one plus one equals two. If it's the right business partner, it could be one plus one equals a hundred or one plus one equals however big you want to get. So the biggest thing is just getting over that vanity that a lot of people have that I'm going to do it on my own and I'm not going to partner. I'm not going to pay for coaching. I'm going to do it. They're out there. It's a pyramid scheme. They're out to screw me over. I'm, I'm not going to give that person $5,000, even though they're going to show me how to create, you know, a $10 million rental portfolio in the next five years. So I think just people getting out of their own way is the biggest part and not trying to think that they're the man or the woman and they can do it on their own. So I think that's the, one of the biggest things for me was paying money to be around other successful people, leaning on my business partner to do things that I'm not good at and not both doing the same thing. Me do this, he does that, and we can grow from there. And then hiring the right team and, and being okay with bringing people on and foregoing some profit, foregoing some cash flow for the longer term time and wealth creation through it. So that was kind of a lot I threw at you there, but those are the, I think the biggest things that I see in my students, as well as just other people that I know that are trying to get started, that kind of stop them from scaling. So yeah, I'm, I'm very pro education, right? But if you've been around long enough, and I'm sure some of our listeners will relate to this, you'll see folks who are kind of, I think the term a lot of folks like to use is like seminar junkies. They're just kind of spending money on education to feel like they're doing something, but they're not really taking action and not applying it. And you bridged that gap. You took the action, you applied it, you kept scaling forward. What do you think is the difference or the delineation between, you know, folks like yourself who apply that versus, you know, those who don't, especially now how you're teaching others how to invest in real estate? I'm sure, you know, you just see that it's just kind of the nature of the the problem, right? What separates the people from the, the people who apply it from those who don't, those who just kind of waste their time? It's usually, you know, the, the biggest and simplest answer, which we can nuance it down a little bit is taking action. Like you're going to only learn so much by listening and watching and sitting on the sidelines. You know, I was, you know, say you're going to learn, I mean, maybe 25%, maybe 30% from watching podcasts, listening to videos, audiobooks, all those things, which you should do, but you're going to learn a vast, vast majority by actually doing it. So going out and taking action is key, but then like being okay with failure. I think the biggest thing, and you know, I'm not like, I'm like not guilty of it too, but the biggest thing is people like are not okay with failure. They think that's a bad thing. So they either run away from failure or they fail and then they quit. Like failure is a step in the process. I think this is the biggest mental thing for people to overcome is like failure. It's not like something that you can maybe do like the most successful people. Close your eyes right now. If you're not driving the top five, most successful people, you know, whether it's, you know, business or whatever it is, I promise they've all failed massively. So just being okay with failure and understanding and start the process and is part of it and you're not going to succeed unless you fail, I think is a big thing because people get started. Like you said, they attend the seminars, they go out and they take action for the first time and they lose money or it doesn't work out or their second deal they lose money on, they stop. I think that's the biggest differentiator is I know so many people that bought one or two rentals and quit because something bad happened, but those that push through are the ones that have 50 rentals, 100 rentals, 500 rentals. Those are the people 
that create businesses that they sell for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So just thinking that failure is the end is, I think, the biggest thing that stops people. Absolutely. So let's dig into the specifics of how you grew and this the deals that you were doing early on and then how you were able to scale. So tell us about the types of deals you were doing when you got started and then ultimately scaling up to leaving your day jobs in 2018. Yeah. So when we got started, we were kind of those side hustle people and those, I remember probably our fifth or sixth rental, you know, didn't appraise out and we had to bring money to the table. And I was like, I'm done with real estate. I like my job. You know, Lucas, my business partner, I was like, let's figure out something else to do. So I was, you know, he kind of pulled me out from my bootstraps at that point. So having a partner, there's another, you know, another benefit of it that, you know, they're going to motivate you when you're not motivated or things are down. But we were, you know, just coming across a few deals every once in a while. We, other wholesalers, we attended local networking events and just kind of were stumbling into a handful of deals a year because we were willing to put ourselves out there. But once we started to create systems, spend money on marketing, hire full-time buyers and, you know, treat it like a business right before we quit our jobs, that's when we started to, you know, spend money and get, you know, 75 leads a month and, you know, spend money and, and have other people out there buying houses for us. Yeah, we have to pay them if they buy it, but we're getting more. It's one of those things where we could own everything and buy 15 a year, or we could try to buy 75 or a hundred those first few years and pay other people to do that and just scale and have more rentals that we could pick off and just the bigger picture of it all. So just kind of treating it as a business and making it a business and paying for things like people and advertising. And, you know, this is what the other successful companies do. So we should do that too. Really, really, uh, you know, really helped. And then we were starting to get deals directly from the sellers at extreme discounts that we could pay people for and still make money on, as opposed to, you know, going to somebody else that sourced the deal and have to pay them that way. So it's just, it's just kind of just turning up the dial, I guess, as far as the money spent and, you know, people and employees, and that's really helped us. Nice. So it sounds like it, the, the deals themselves on an individual basis were probably a mix of flips, maybe some burrs to get rentals, maybe some wholesales. What were the exact strategies you were employing in the deals? Yeah. I feel like at first it was just, let's go get a really cheap Let's get the this property under contract for as cheap as possible. We'll figure it out. And then we kind of molded into, I think what you're getting at, a little more structured to it. We're like, we want to add, you know, this many rentals. So we're going to pick a few off and all right, let's look at this. Let's run it through a, you know, pro forma. If we wholesale it, here's how much we'll make. If we take it down, finance it, pay all the things, you know, this is how much we'll make. All right, which which is the best decision to make on this specific deal? Because Generally, you're going to make more money on a flip than a wholesale, but you also have risk, you have time, you have energy, you have a lot of things and things can go wrong. You know, and things usually do go wrong when you're rehabbing, as most people know that rehab. So I would say we've always kind of stuck to this number. I would say about of the, we bought 300 houses last year. I kept like 50 of them as rentals. We only rehabbed last year about 25 and the rest we wholesaled. So a majority of what we buy, we wholesale. This year, we're going to do some more flipping, actually kind of lean into that, you know, other people are doing this. We try to do the other things most of the time. So I would say on average, 75% wholesale, 25% flip is what we've done and what allows us to scale. Cause you can only scale so much if you're, you know, hiring crews and, and closing on properties and financing properties, you know, to sell. Oh, great. Great. So take us back to 2018, right before you left your job. What was that like? How did you come to the realization that, Hey, I can do this. I can make this leap. And you know, working with, uh, I know you're married now, you have kids. I don't know if you were married at the time, what your life situation was like, and really 
bring us back to what it felt like to maybe be looking over that cliff and thinking about taking the leap. What was that like? It was, it was scary because I had a job that I really did not hate. I enjoyed it enough. I didn't love it. Like I love what I do now, but I liked it. It paid me very, very well. And Lucas was the one, my business partner who we do all this stuff together. He did not like his job and he wanted out. So he was doing it. And I was like, you're going to do awesome. You're going to go from spending 10 hours a week to spending six hours a week on our business. That's awesome. And there was some guilt of like, I should probably do it too. Cause he quit his job before I did, you know, you're going to do all this. Should we pay you? Like, how should we do this? Or how much should you pay? And you're buying rentals that are going to be worth so much. And so not getting left behind and not feeling like I'm carrying my part of the, the, the end of the bargain was, was a big part of it. There was some fear there because I had a two-year-old daughter and a wife and a nice house and you know, people are like, you know, yeah, of course it's easy to quit a job making 250 grand. Well, actually it's harder to do that than quit a job making 50 grand because it's not too, you know, no offense, but it's a lot easier. There's a lot more $50,000 jobs out there than $250,000 job. So my lifestyle that I created depended on a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, we weren't like spending money on stupid stuff, but nice house, a pool, all these things. So it was scary for sure. But and I actually made less money for those first couple of years, but the amount of rentals we built, the systems we put in place now are paying dividends down the line. So it was scary. A lot of doubters, a lot of haters saying, don't do it. You know, stick with your job. You can retire when you're 60 and all these things. But anyways, I just looked ahead, didn't want to left behind the Lucas holding the water and didn't want to be left behind in the potential growth and thought that if I spent, if we spent 10 hours a week each on this and we have 25 rentals. Like, and we flipped 10 houses, like, what could we do with spending six hours a week? Like, how could that compound and build a team and all those things? And looking back, I was right. Things did end up working out and things have grown like crazy, but it, it was a risk for sure. Absolutely. So when you made that leap, you weren't at the point that you would consider yourself like financially oh, independent or financially no, no. free. It was, this has to work out. Yes, correct. No, we had 25 rentals, cash flowing, you know, 200 bucks a rental split between Luke's and I, and I like probably like it was, you know, we weren't, I was not making any money passively through my rentals and I still leave it to that company, but we had to create active income through wholesaling and flipping. Like that's where I don't ever tell people to just quit their jobs because they have X amount of rentals. In my opinion, you need active income and passive both and keep them separate. So the active income, you know, I was quitting, I needed to replenish that. So we had some wholesale deals in the pipeline, some flips in the pipeline. So I knew we had a certain amount of money coming in in the next six months, but it wasn't as much as I was making before. And we had to make it work or I was going to have to go back to the, to the job that I just quit. So uh, yeah, we, we definitely weren't financially free or independent at that point, or even making good money. Really. It was, you know, decent money, but not as much as I was making. Wow. So how long did it take after you left your full-time job and focusing on the real estate business? How long did it take to achieve financial independence, financial freedom in the you know terms that you would put it? Two years, right at, right at about two years. So right, uh, 2018 quit, 2020 is kind of that year with COVID and everybody freaking out and us deciding to just go all in at that time. That's really when we started to scale and buy a ton more properties, wholesale more bigger margins, flip more margins, and rentals had been stacking over the past few years before that. And it takes a while for those to kind of be bought, get put in the system and, you know, get rented and start to produce income and depreciate and all the, all the things that we don't need to get into, but it took, it took about two years. So it took about five years total, you know, looking back hindsight's 2020, but you know, a lot more was accomplished after I quit my job and focused on it full-time and got to that point. 
which makes sense, right? It's that like, duh, but it, yeah. you know, it still is an unknown when you're doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was, it was a risk and a roll of the dice, no matter how you want to put it, even though it, it worked out. So a question I like to ask folks who have achieved financial freedom, I mean, you're a young guy, I don't know how old you are, but for folks that are listening, you know, look like you're probably in your mid thirties or so. 35, you nailed it. Approximately. All right, great. Perfect. You're only just a couple years older than me. So you, you hit that point, but you're still working. You're in the office right now, which is great. But I think a lot of people have this idea of financial freedom, financial independence. I'm going to just quit. I'm going to go sit on a beach the rest of my life. But you got a lot of life left. Why are you sitting on a beach? Like what keeps you You know, probably getting up early in the morning, coming to the office during the day? Why are you still doing it? I love that question. And I get it all the time. Like, A, you're not financially free or you wouldn't be on TikTok posting if you had that many properties. Like you would like. And that's, that's the mindset of the people that are never going to become financially free. The mindset of people that are financially free or will become financially independent have that mindset that it's about more than the money. It's about the, the drive. It's about the grind. It's about the growth. It's about the challenge. It's about the competitiveness. It's about overcoming. It's about creating impact. It's not just about money. Like I, I use impression all the time and I, I don't want, I'm not comparing myself to Elon Musk. Don't get it twisted. He's a million times smarter than my left toe will ever be. But or his left toe is a million times smarter than I'll ever be. But he works like 80 hours a week. You don't think he can go sit on a beach? The people that achieve great things are driven by more than money. So I want to create generational impact. I used to say generational wealth. Now it's generational impact. So I'm still working 67 hours a week, but I'm doing it because I love it. And I'm creating massive wealth. I'm not working 80 hours a week to make 80 grand a year. Like I am doing things to grow and scale. And we have almost 500 rental doors owned by our team. We have a team of 38 people in our office between our companies and they're all growing rental portfolios. So there's more to it than sitting on the beach. And if your end goal is to not work, you're probably going to be working. But if your end goal is to do what you want, when you want, you have the option to not work. So it's just, it's a different mindset for people that think that retire, or, you know, financially free means sitting on the beach. It does if it's when you're 70 and you retire. Yes, because you can't enjoy life. But nobody that's successful that I know that's created wealth in their thirties is sitting on the beach. They're creating more wealth and creating more impact. So the, it's just a different a mindset shift of I'm going to tire I'm 70 and sit on the beach. Well, if you're going to tire in five years, you're probably going to want to do more with your life. So has that goal for you of creating general generational impact, has that evolved over time? Have you kind of gotten to that point once you kind of stepped up to financial independence, kind of like walking upstairs, you're like, okay, what's the next goal I'm going to go for? Or did you always have that in mind of generational impact? Oh goodness. No, my, our first goal, I, we still had the sheet of paper written somewhere on a, a loose leaf binder when Luke's and I met for like dinner to like go over the business in like 2014, before we started, it was one rental property a year for 10 years. So one house a year for 10 years. So 10 years by 10 rental properties total. So that was the original goal. And then it was 25 million in real estate by 2025. And we were setting these goals that seemed audacious at the time. And they kind of work, you know, depending on where your mindset is, but they weren't, we were crushing them and yay, pat us on the back, or we need to set bigger goals because we can do some cool stuff with the right team. So now it has developed recently into generational impact, a billion dollars in real estate, bringing an NBA team to St. Louis, like these big, huge goals that you can't really crush, right? I mean, you can, but like realistically, let's, I'm not an idiot over here or I am, but not always. <laughs> I understand that, you know, probably not going to own an NBA team, but if that's my goal, that means we're making a lot of money. We're making St. Louis a more desirable city. We're creating impact in the city, making it better. We would create a ton of jobs and, you know, 
NBA is probably, St. Louis probably 40th on the list of expansion teams, right? Not even close. So if we were able to do that, that would mean a lot of other things happened because of that. So, and we'd helped a lot of people on the way. So it has developed and is continuing to develop for sure. Seems like the kind of city that should have an NBA team though, right? I mean, you guys have a, a hockey team. Why wouldn't you have a and, an NBA and baseball, right? That we support in hockey, we support. So yeah, it's, losing losing the Rams, which they would uh, they were going to go to LA no matter what market they were in. That's what they wanted to do. It wasn't like a knock on St. Louis. It was just an L. I get it, business decision. But yeah, I think that hurts us. But you never know. We'll see. That that'd be cool if we could do it. So I think as investors, as real estate investors, and and as people generally. It's important to be honest with ourselves and and understand ourselves, our own formulations and what we're really willing to do versus what we're not willing to do. And what I mean by that is not everybody's willing to take the leaps that you did. Some folks out there who are making $250,000 at their day job don't want to give that up to, you know, roll the dice on a real estate investment business. They'd be better suited to engage in financial discipline, invest, you know, slowly on the side, you know, they don't just don't have that formulation. I don't know whether you would agree or disagree, but if you agree, how can folks really understand themselves and whether they should, you know, go for whether they're the type of person that is more formulated to roll the dice, if you will, and go for the real estate business or take a less, a lower risk approach and just kind of build wealth over time. Do you understand the questions that make sense? And would you agree or disagree? Yeah, no, I would agree completely. I think no one knows the answers to everything. There's, you know, differences for everybody. But the one thing that I know is certain, if you try to do exactly what I did, it won't work out for you. If I try to do exactly what you do, <laughs> it won't work out, right? You can't walk the same path. Trying to be somebody else will never work. I've done it in social media. All these people I used to try to be, and it didn't work. As soon as you're who you are, then you're going to be successful in anything. So yes, I a thousand percent agree. But as far as like deciding if you're the right person for that, I think that's the beauty of real estate. You don't have to quit your $250,000 job. You can carve out some time. Hopefully, if you can't carve out time, then there's your answer. But if you carve out some time to try a wholesale, try a rental property or two, try a flip, like you can dab your toe into the water and then you can slowly scale. And if you are on your third rental and you just hate it, well, then maybe you should invest in a REIT or give you money when you're syndicating for NT capital or whatever it may look like, maybe that's what they should do with their money. So I think it's one of those things where you don't have to, I hate the depends answer, but you don't have to decide tomorrow to quit your job. You can start to dip your toe in the water and experience a lot of real estate in 10 hours a week or 20 hours a month, whatever it looks like, and then make that decision. And a lot of it's going to be just how risk adverse are you and your other investments? And are you looking to quit your job? There's a lot of factors that go into it. Everybody has a path to retirement, financial freedom, but everybody's path is different. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. I love the question, but there's a lot of factors I feel like to go into it. There are a lot of factors that go into it. I agree. I think you you mentioned a path. The biggest difference or the, the biggest thing there is that we're kind of assuming that folks walk down their own path, whatever it is, take a step in front of where you're standing and then take that next step and keep moving forward, whichever direction is right for you. And a lot of people don't take those steps. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Would you agree? Oh yeah. I mean, a lot of people just don't take those steps for the little, a ton of reasons. We talked about them earlier, fear, lack of knowledge, you know, failure, scaring them. A lot of different people do not take those steps and because everybody has a different trigger and a, a different why. So, you know, if there was calling card that I could get everybody to go do it, then I would, you know, be taking this on my, you know, 747 customized Boeing jet. There's just not Hey, they're just not a, you know, one size fits all motivational approach or one size fits all investment approach. And that's why 
it's awesome. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's challenging because it's different for everybody. And not everybody has that drive and that is okay. Not everybody wants to live the life that I'm living or you're living or that somebody on social media is living. And that's fine. But a lot of people just aren't willing to take those steps and, you know, maybe they will in five years, maybe they will in 10 years and everybody's going to come to it at their own time. And somebody may never come to it. It, it, it kind of is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So before I move to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, wanna can we sum it up and think about the Sam out there who is listening, who hasn't gotten started yet? Sam, six, you know, or, or excuse me, you started in what, 2014, I think you said, 77. Let's say eight years ago, Sam, who was just kind of starting to think about it, hasn't really started to move down the path. What advice would you give that Sam to get started, to maybe do it a bit faster, to do it better than you did and however you would evaluate that, you know, quote unquote better? Yeah. Great question. I would say a, a couple things. Number one would be get involved in your local community as quickly as possible, wherever you're wanting to invest. I know some people syndicate, invest out of market that that happens, but a majority of people invest in their backyard. So getting involved in your community now, like go to your local meetups, join your local Facebook groups. Yes, I understand there's scammers on the Facebook groups. Yes, I understand there's people shopping deals that for the fourth time, I get that. But there are also active investors on the Facebook group. You can also post, I'm looking for a drywall mudder next week who's available and you will get a connection to somebody that may be more expensive than you want, but there's connections there. And going to your local meetups, meeting the people and the companies that put those on. We host ours in St. Louis. There's 250, 300 people every single month that come. People buy and sell deals at our meetup and we make connections and we hire people from it. So you have to do this with the local community, whether you have a partner or not. You have to lean on your local community and you have to have people to buy houses from, sell houses to, contractors, insurance agents, all those people. You need to meet those people and you can meet them all this month if you get involved and plug in virtually and in person your network. So that's the number one thing that I wish I had done earlier. But beyond that, I would say just, you know, being okay with leaning on somebody else's knowledge, whether it's free, whether it's a mentorship, whatever it is, I don't really care. But I was one of those people that thought they had to do it on their own and they don't pay for help. These are scammers and, you know, paying a little bit of money or a lot of bit of money, it's not worth it. I'll figure it out on my own and I'll save money by being inefficient. So I'll save money by being inefficient on my own. It doesn't make sense, right? So, so those are the couple of things, you know, not to go down a 20 minute answer, just community and, you know, leaning on other people's knowledge ASAP, I think are, are huge. I love it. I love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Sam, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's go. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment, we'll just keep it obviously with real estate. The best investment I've ever made up to date is a 42 pack of houses that we bought. So last year we bought 42 houses in the same neighborhood, all from one owner. 
it's a deal we've been looking at for a couple of years and finally got the funding and the property management because not that many people can take down that type of deal, especially because we could only get in five of them. So we could only get in five of the 42. So big wow. risk, but big upside. We bought them for 83 grand a door. So we bought it for 3.5 million. It appraised for 5.8 as is, which was a low appraisal. We're going to put probably about 500 grand into it. So we'll be all in about 4 million. And I think it'll appraise for like seven, seven and a half million. So, and it's in a great area, a great city, just rougher little area, but we're owning half the neighborhood. So we're going to be able to turn that whole area around. Ton of equity, ton of cash flow from day one. It was a home run because we were willing to take the risk of not seeing all the properties and could figure out the funding and the property management right away. Wow. That is an interesting deal and quite a big buy. So Great. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So we made a ton of bad investments, right? That's what you do when you grow and scale and fail. But yep. probably the worst one I would say would be the biggest issue boo-boo we made was the a self-storage facility that we bought. So we bought a self-storage facility that had some pre-existing, you know, distressed facility with signs that didn't match and numbers that didn't match all the things. So we we bought that with some land next to it, painted it, fixed it up, got a website, all the all the nice things. And we added two smaller buildings to it, you know, five by 10, five, you know, 10 by 15 indoor storage. And the rest of it, we were going to rock and, you know, just do outdoor boat and RV storage. You know, that being in the space, you're a lot more of an expert in self-storage than I am. But anyways, we built those two buildings super easy. So we decided to do an indoor boat and RV storage because it was a need. You could rent it for 280 bucks a month and the cash flow made sense to do the initial investment. So 260 foot building by 22 feet high, and it blew over like three times because we built it wrong. Didn't know we were doing the contractor that built the small ones. Didn't understand that, you know, when, you know, in between the bays, you know, we built the bays and then the back wall just blew it all off. So it was just horrible job by us. We didn't go to the site, didn't check on it, trusted the contractor, blew over three times with like pretty long, strong windstorms, but anyways, blew over, ended up scrapping it, try to get insurance on it, but I forgot to set up builder's risk insurance on that third building because we that was oh. an afterthought, right? So the first two, I did it, right? I'd never done this before, but I knew to get insurance on builder's risk. The third one, didn't even think about it. Insurance guy came out there. He's like, this building's not even on the policy. So not the end of the world, about 150 grand, just down, down, down the pooper, scrapped it, sold what we could, and now have out, uh, outdoor just, you know, storage there. But we're still, you know, because we bought it right, bought it during COVID when the the sellers were scared. We're going to have about 900 in it. And it's probably worth about 1.5. So we'll be able to recoup that on like a refinance here soon. So not the happy ending, but still it was a, a boo-boo on my part for several things, not trusting the contractor too much and not visiting the site, hundred percent my responsibility. And then we just built it wrong and I didn't get insurance on it. So bad on me. Wow. A lot of lessons in that one. Definitely painful. And there's risk in building properties. That is an interesting one. I've never had a, a building of any kind blow over, at least to my knowledge. You don't have but, to uh, rub it in, okay? Come on, Taylor. I'm just kidding. It's fine. <laughs> I'm, it's all good. It made for good content. I appreciate you sharing. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? To properly leverage debt by far. There's the mindset, the woo-woo, the mindset of abundance, all the stuff I could get into that most people probably roll their eyes at. But you can't roll your eyes at debt. Debt literally is how the entire financial system works. Borrowing money to buy an asset. People do it to start businesses. Elon Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion. He did not write a $44 billion check. He borrowed money from banks and investors. And Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook with an angel investor, Peter Thiel. Like 
borrowing money people like shy away from, right? Debt is bad. Dave Ramsey, you know, pay cash for things and, and, you know, pay cash to mediocrity is, is what you do with that. But if you want to create wealth, you have to borrow money. You have to be okay with debt. I am in $25 million worth of debt, but it allows me to own over $40 million worth of real estate. So I have close to 20 million in equity because of debt. Had I paid cash for things, I would have $800,000 in equity. So just being okay with leveraging debt and understanding that if you do that responsibly, that is how people become billionaires and multimillionaires and centimillionaires is debt. That's the only way. 89% of millionaires are self-made. They don't do it by, you know, saving their money. I'm, I, you know, majority of them, they do that by leveraging debt to buy assets. So debt, debt, debt properly leveraged is the way to wealth. Awesome. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your story, all of these lessons and knowledge. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Just whatever social media app you're on, I'm probably on all of them. So at Sam Faster Freedom on the socials, I have the Faster Freedom podcast as well. And then I got a book coming out, but I think by the time this drops, I think there'll be a, a book coming out. So just check out fasterfreedom.com. It'll, it'll all be linked there. All right, great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're building wealth on Main Street along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.